morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. Before we get started, let me just say a word of thanksgiving to those of you who support this ministry. I so appreciate it. I mean, I wake up in the mornings most every morning. We've been doing this Brian now will be 20 years in April, and I wake up and pinch myself because I can't believe I get to study the Bible all day. And I appreciate your support to allow me to do that. So just, you know, can't appreciate how much I do appreciate what you do, those of you who support. So thank you very much. All right, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're in the fourth chapter. We saw in our study last week that Yeshua was leaving or abandoning Jerusalem, and he's heading north to Samaria. Uh, Verse 3 and 4 says, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now notice it says he went away again into Galilee. You remember in John 2, he was in Galilee. He was at a wedding there, and he went down to Jerusalem. Well, now he's heading back to Galilee. And it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we kind of focused on this last time, so if you missed last week, you really need to get that message so you understand, because it's a foundation that we're building on here. The word had here in this text is the Greek word day. And it's often translated must in the fourth gospel. And I think the must here is a prophetic must. In other words, by going through Samaria, Yeshua is fulfilling prophecy. Yahweh had promised to once again call the Samaritans the sons of the living God. So Yeshua, in fulfillment of that prophecy, is taking the gospel now to the Samaritans. He left Jerusalem, and then he went into Judea to spend a little time there. It says in John 3.22, After these things, Yeshua and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So after these things is referring to Yeshua and his disciples' time in Jerusalem. When they were in there, he cleansed the temple. He had a conversation with Nicodemus. And at some point, after those things, he went out of Jerusalem into the countryside of Judea. Now Israel was divided into three regions back then. You had Judea down here in the south, then you had Samaria, and then you had Galilee, which included the Sea of Galilee up there. And we're going to get into Galilee eventually and spend some time there. So in John 4, Yeshua is headed to Samaria, and what's interesting is John the Baptist had already been in Samaria preparing the way. You know, John, that's his ministry, his preparatory, he's preparing the way for Messiah, Well, it's the same thing as he heads into Samaria. John 3.23, John also was baptizing in Ainon and Silene. Now, because there is much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized. Now, Ainon and Silene here are both places in Samaria. So John's in Samaria. He's preaching, he's baptizing, he's doing what he always does, preparing the way for Messiah. And now, here comes Messiah heading in that direction. We see in our text that Yeshua is actually following the order that He commanded to His apostles and disciples to take the Gospel to all humanity in Acts 1.8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem, and then all Judea, and Samaria, even to the utmost parts of the earth. So Yeshua first preached in Jerusalem, then He went to Judea, And now he's taking the gospel to Samaria. And as we look at this text for this morning, you've got to keep in mind what we looked at last week. And you have to understand how far this hatred 
between Jews and Samaritans went. And let me add this to what I said last week. In the second century BC, the Samaritans helped the Syrians in their war against Jerusalem. So these people are already hated. Now they're helping the enemies of Jerusalem. And then in 128 BC, the Jewish high priest retaliated and he burned the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So there's just lots of bad blood here, people. All right, they're neighboring, you know, districts here and they just virtually hate each other. And this animosity just keeps on building. Well, as we look at the text, we need to notice the contrast that we see in this text between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You know, we saw earlier Yeshua had this conversation with Nicodemus. Now he's going to have a conversation with a woman. Well, Nicodemus was an eminent representative of Orthodox Judaism. Well, now Lazarus records this interview of Yeshua with a woman who stood for a class that was wholeheartedly despised by Orthodox Judaism. And from the point of view of the Orthodox Jew, there was really three strikes against this Samaritan woman. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she was immoral. All right, so they, she, this lady is just, no one wants to talk to this lady, okay? So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. All right, the word Sychar is probably the Greek version of the name of an ancient city called Shechem. Hopefully you're familiar with that city from the Tanakh. The Aramaic name for Shechem is Sychar, which is very similar to you know, the Greek version. Now, some scholars identify, identify Sychar as the present-day Arab village of Askar at the foot of Mount Ebal. But recent archaeological excavations, and that's the thing, we're learning something new all the time as they discover you know, things, dig up things. They've ruled out Askar as the site of this first century village. Askar, they say, was not inhabited until the Middle Ages. So the ancient site of Shechem, however, fits both theologically and geographically in the encounter between Yeshua and the people of Samaria. This ancient site of Shechem is at the entrance of the mountain pass that is traversed from the road from Jerusalem to the north. The city was destroyed in AD 67 by the Roman army of Vespasian and was never rebuilt. Now, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, Yeshua's meeting with the Samaritan woman at Shechem should cause some thought-provoking ideas there. You say, well, it's interesting that he's meeting this Samaritan woman at Shechem. Why is that so interesting? Well, last week we looked at 1 Kings chapter 12, and we saw that Shechem was the place that the 12 tribes assembled to proclaim Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, as king of Israel. See, this is 1 Kings 12.1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, remember what happened here? Okay, we had, some, we had some problems here, and this is where the division in the tribes came from. It starts at Shechem. It was the site of the beginning of the end of Israel as a united kingdom. They came apart at Shechem. And after the civil war, the, the rebel Jeroboam, the new king of Israel, he made Shechem his capital. Now here's what's interesting, people. The tribes broke up and dispersed at Shechem. This is the very site that Yeshua begins to reunite the 12 tribes, just like he promised to do 
in Isaiah 11, 11 and 12. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time. Why is it a second recovery? Because the Exodus was the first. He brought his people out of slavery. This is a second Exodus. This is an Exodus from the law of sin and death when he brings his people out of that and constitutes the kingdom of God. He says, with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathos, Cush, Elam, Sinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for all the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel. This is what we see in Samaria. This is Israel. These are the banished ones. And now this is he is in Shechem here and he is beginning to call these tribes back. He will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You know, the Assyrians had scattered Israel all over the globe. But Yahweh had promised to regather them. And the regathering was about to begin with one Samaritan woman. That's not a good place to start, is it? I mean, come on, an immoral woman who's a Samaritan, you really want to start there? Yeah, that's where the Lord starts. Let me give you another interesting fact about Shechem. When the Israelites conquered and settled Canaan, they brought with them out of Egypt the bones of Joseph. You remember that story? And they buried those bones in Shechem, in a tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, who was the father of Shechem. So here the bones of Jacob, Israel, are buried in Shechem. Here's where Israel's dispersed. Here's where Israel begins to come back together. And Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, at the end of verse 5, in the beginning of verse 6, it says, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. As we'll see as we go on in the story, it seems as though that this woman, and perhaps the Samaritans in general, took pride in claiming Jacob as their forefather. Now, the Greek word that Lazarus uses here to describe the well in this verse, is pege, and it means a running spring. But in verse 11 and 12, he uses the word well there again, but this time he uses a different word. He used the word freae, meaning a cistern or a dugout well. And it seems that Jacob's well was both a spring and a well. It was a deep hole that Jacob had dug in the ground, and it was fed by a spring. The site is still a popular tourist attraction today, and the deep spring still flows. Edersheim estimated that the well was originally about 150 feet deep. So here you have a well, but the water in it is it's in goes down into a, a stream where the water is living. It's moving. So it's a great place to have a well. And it says, Yeshua, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. The word weary is kapeao, and it means to be weary to the point of sweat and exhaustion. He's wore out. And the Greek tense indicates that he had become tired and that he remained exhausted. So we see Yeshua sitting down on this well. He's thirsty because he's going to ask for water. And he's tired. And he's also hungry because he sends his disciples to get food. Now, what's interesting here, people have used verses like this to try to prove or disprove the deity of Christ. See, he's not God. He's hungry. How can God be hungry? How could God be weary? God's not hungry. He's not weary. But Yeshua is. Well, how can he be hungry and weary and tired if he's God? 
Well, because he's also man. See, and people who say these kind of things, they don't understand the hypostatic union. They'll read these verses and they'll go off in this tangent. He can't be deity because he's just a man. Boy, you're not really familiar with Scripture. If you hold that view, let me tell you what, from beginning to end, the Bible over and over presses the deity of Christ. At the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the triune God, was forever joined to true humanity. And this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. It's a theological term. Hypostatic is from the Greek hukostasis, which means substance or essence. In theological language, it means person. So the doctrine of the hypostatic union is the doctrine of the personal union of the two natures, the divine and the human of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. He is 100% God. This is not a 50-50. This is not an 80-20. It's 100-100. You said that doesn't work. Well, there's nothing else like this, okay? He's 100% God and He's 100% man. This is where we get the theological term theanthropic. He was the theanthropic man. This comes from theos, meaning God, and anthropos, meaning God. He is the God-man. One person with two natures. And this trifold, twofold nature enables him to present both God and man in proper terms in reconciliation. Being man, he can make atonement for man. But being God, his atonement has infinite value. Now his weariness... And his thirst were experiences that arose out of his human nature. And that's what we have to understand. He was a real man. He felt everything a real man feels. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. And he was conscious of thirst. And he's conscious of this weariness. But also at the same time, he's conscious that he is the eternal and only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is clear from the words he speaks to the Samaritan woman. He says, but whoever drinks of this water that I give him shall never thirst. He'll never thirst again if you drink this water. But the water that I give him will become to him a well of water spring up to eternal life. So he's going to provide eternal life. He's not a human being that can say that. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I, who speak to you, am He. I'm Him. I'm the One. So at the same time He felt fatigue and thirst in His body, He was also conscious of His divine nature, that He was the eternal second person of the Trinity. See, He must be the divine person in order for His redemptive work to have infinite value. If He was just a man, He could only die for His own sin. Couldn't Couldn't go beyond that. He had to have a human nature, not simply to become our substitute, but also in order that He could understand our experiences and our genuine humanity. See, He is he can be our great high priest because He understands the things we experience because He's been there. He's a man. There's a man in heaven, and when you pray, when you cry to God, He goes, I know what you're going through. I went through similar things. I know what it's like. I felt the pain of being human. He possesses a true and a genuine humanity apart from sin. Look at Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, addresses Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, 
and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. In verse 5, we see that he is a descendant of David, which speaks of his humanity. Then in verse 6, he's called Yahweh, our righteousness, which speaks of his divinity. He is the God-man. One person, two natures. We really can't illustrate this in the human realm, people. He's different from God, and then he's man. He's different from man, then he's God. He's a unique person of the universe. He is the God-man. And I think it's encouraging to know there's a man in heaven who knows exactly what it feels like to be human and exactly the trials we go through and the pains we suffer. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like for people to turn their backs on him and persecute him. He knows our pains and sufferings. And the cool thing is he's also God, so guess what? He can help us in him. That's a pretty cool combination there, people. (laughs) He's a man who understands he's God who can help us deal with him. And he's, all right, he's at this well, and he says, it's about the sixth hour. Now, boy, that might sound simple, but <laughs> it can get real complicated. Is this literal, or is this symbolic? See, six is the number of man, the number of humanity. Man and woman were both created on the sixth day. Six is also the number symbolic of man in rebellion. But if it's literal, then the question comes, is he using Jewish time? Or is he using Roman time? See, if it's Jewish time, the time would be 12 noon. If it's Roman time, it'd be 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. And 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. are the normal times that women of the village would come to the village well at the beginning and the end of the day. And those scholars who support Jewish time, which would be noon, point out that this woman is leading a disreputable life, and so she's kind of outcast, and so she's coming at a time when no one else is there. She doesn't want to hear it. She doesn't want to look at, get the scorn from all the other women in the village when they come and, oh, there's so-and-so over there. You know, so she's coming at a different time. But if that's the case, if they're looking down and this woman is just, you know, really outcast in the village, it seems weird that her testimony of Yeshua as the Messiah in verse 28 through 30 would be so readily accepted by the village people. Because once he te- she begins to tell them, they're like, oh, they, they grab a hold of this right away. So... I think it's obvious she's leading a sinful life. We'll see that, not this week, but next week in the text. But the Samaritans had a whole different view of morality than the Jews did. All right? I think we're familiar with that already. Samaritan customs were not near as strict as the Jews. Um, That's why they considered Samaritans unclean. They considered them heretical. They considered them bad or, in most cases, worse than the Gentiles. Now, some scholars argue that John followed Roman time, which would begin at midnight, but there's little evidence, really, for that view. It seems best to see Lazarus here as meaning noon. All right? Six, not 6 p.m. So Nicodemus comes to Yeshua, remember, at night. And here the Samaritan woman comes, or they have their meeting at high noon. All right? There's a lot of contrast in these two. There came a woman of Samaria. As I said earlier, she's got three strikes against her. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's guilty of sexual immorality. Now, we talked about this last week, how the Jews felt towards the Samaritans. We know from Scripture exactly how this woman would have been treated by the Pharisees. And, you know, she's probably used to that kind of stuff. They're avoiding Samaria altogether, just, you know, how they felt about it. Look what Luke has to say. He says, now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. 
And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's not talking out loud, at least he's not being that rude, but he is thinking, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, we're going to see in this text, this woman is surprised that Yeshua's talking to her because she's probably used to this kind of stuff. So here we have Yeshua meeting with a woman at a well. He's sitting thus by the well, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So she, he's at the well sitting there. She shows up. Now, here's something that's interesting. Three times in the Tanakh, we find a woman at a well. Genesis 24 Rebekah, the future bride of Isaac, is found at a well by Abraham's servant. Remember, he was sent to find a wife. He finds her at the well. In Genesis 29, Jacob, who is Israel, meets Rachel, his future bride, at a well. And in Exodus chapter 2, Moses meets Zipporah, his bride, at a well. So we see over and over that a bride is courted at a well. And here Yeshua, who is the bridegroom, has come to court his covenant bride, Israel, symbolized by this woman and promised by the prophet in Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You will be known Yahweh. Then you will know Yahweh, he says. Now, three times, betrothed, betrothed. He's going he's to bring Israel back. That's the promise. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people. They've been scattered. They're not his people. They've been divorced. And he's going to say to those, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So here we meet Yeshua. The bridegroom, meeting this Samaritan woman at the well, there's so much symbolism here in this text. And Lazarus has kind of earlier prepared us for it because he's talked about the bridegroom in John 3, 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, John saying, Yeshua's the bridegroom, I'm just his friend, who stands here, hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So the joy of mine has been made full. So he's, he's connected this idea with Yeshua being the bridegroom, and now we're at a well, meeting a woman. Just, you know, coincidence? I don't know. I think there's a lot more to it than that. And I think the, you know, these people who are reading this are making these connections. The bridegroom has come for his bride. And so Yeshua says to her, she shows up, and he says to her, give me a drink. Now, this is an heiress-active imperative which carried a sense of some urgency. He's thirsty. In doing this, Yeshua violated a number of social customs at that time. The normal prejudice of the day prohibited public conversation between men and women, between Jews and Samaritans, and especially between strangers. 
A Jewish rabbi would rather die of thirst than violate these proprieties. All right? Now, remember, the Samaritans were considered to be worse than Gentiles. The Jews typically regarded Samaritans as unclean apostates. And it's interesting that shortly, in a short time after this time period, or after this incident, the Jews made a new law stating that the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually unclean, the Mishnah. How much did they hate these people? You know, a woman was unclean in her, in her menstrual cycle, and they say, well, she's always, a Samaritan's always in her menstrual cycle, and she's always unclean, and just, you know. The Pharisees actually prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. And this accounts for the woman's shock. You know, she's like, whoa, this Jew is talking to me? And considering the depth of this breach between the Samaritans and Jews, you may understand the importance of Yeshua's teaching about the Samaritans in his parable of the Good Samaritan. See, he plays on this hatred in that parable. And if you don't understand the hatred, you'll never get that parable. Remember a lawyer comes to him and said, you know, good teacher, what's a great commandment in the law? And he goes, well, you know, and he goes, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You love your neighbor yourself. He goes, that's right. Okay, so then the lawyer says, well, let me ask you a question. I get that part, but let me ask you this. Who's my neighbor? I want to make sure I don't love anybody I don't need to, basically is what he's saying, you know? So the Lord answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan, who acted out of compassion, he helped a man in need, at great risk to himself. So Yeshua asked the expert of the Torah, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So Yeshua says, okay, who's the neighbor? And most commentators, most Bible teachers say, your neighbor is anyone in need. That's not what it's talking about at all. There's a man in need, and two you know, high-ranking Jewish people walk by him. Well, the Samaritan goes, and he helps this man in need. Well, according to the text, who is the neighbor? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. In other words, the one who showed mercy towards the man in need, and Yeshua said to him, go and do the same. So who's the neighbor? It's the one who shows mercy. Who was that? Was the guy beaten up? No, it was the Samaritan. So what's the answer to the man's original question, who's my neighbor? The Samaritans. So what Yeshua is saying to this man, the people who you view as the most low, the most despised, the most hatred scum of the earth, that's your neighbor. And he says, go love them. They would never think of loving a Samaritan. I mean, they hated these people. So Yeshua is forcing him to understand that even my enemy is my neighbor. Go and love him. Now in our text, Yeshua asks the one for a drink. Now in order for the woman to give him a drink, he'd have to drink out of her cup, her bucket, whatever. You know, he didn't have anything to get anything out of the well. And in New Testament times, Jews assumed that Samaritans were ritually unclean. And thus to have contact with them was to render oneself virtually unclean. You can't touch any of their drinking vessels, any of their, you know, anything they eat off of, anything they use. That was just disregarding the Pharisaic interpretation of Old Covenant law. Notice what Peter says to his Gentile audience when he's talking to them. He said to them, now you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who's a Jew to associate with foreigners. That's the way he begins his gospel message. <laughs> I'm like... 
What a great way to win your crowd over. You people know I'm not allowed to associate with you because you're not clean and, you know, I'm clean and it would just get me unclean hanging around with you guys. But see, the thing is, the word unlawful here is the Greek word athemitas, and it emphasized the violation of established order. It means taboo. In other words, the old covenant ceremonial law didn't say it was unlawful. They added that. The rabbis, the Pharisees were always adding things to the law to make sure you didn't break the law. But the things they added weren't the law. And they said, the rabbis, the Pharisees would say that if you entered a Gentile home, you resulted in a seven-day defilement. So by talking to this woman and asking her for a drink, Yeshua is rejecting the basic assumptions of Pharisaic Judaism. He said, I don't buy any of that stuff. And I'm going to this woman who you think is unclean, who you wouldn't talk to. And it says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he sent his disciples. Where is he? Where, where are they right now? Samaria, right? So he sends his disciples to get food. Do you think they went back to Jerusalem to get food? They're going to a Samaritan village to get food. All right? And they're going to get food that Samaritans have handled, that Samaritans have touched, and they're bringing back that food that they're going to eat. The Pharisees would not have purchased food from Samaritans. But Yeshua sent his disciples to get some food. They're hungry. Yeah, here's another question. Why did all the disciples go to buy food? How many men does it take to buy lunch? (laughs) The point here is Yeshua wanted to spend some time alone with this woman. He wanted to have a dialogue. He wanted to have a conversation. He didn't want his disciples freaking out and, you know, scaring this woman. He wanted to be able to just sit down with her and talk to her. But she wasn't even there yet. But Obviously, he knew she was coming, so he sends them away, all right? He could be alone. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, you know, he says, give me a drink. And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I'm a Samaritan woman, what, how are you doing this? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. A woman is astonished at the willingness for him to speak to her. And so she reminds him of the, you know, Jew-Samaritan etiquette. Now, the question I think we have to ask here is, how did she know he was a Jew? Did they wear little signs? (laughs) I'm a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How how did they know? Well, the clothing probably set them apart, made them different. One thing in Numbers 15.38, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels. Tzitzit is the Hebrew here on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall, put them on, they shall put on the tassels each corner a cord of blue. So the Jews were to have these tassels on their garment. The purpose of the tassel, tzitzit in its root goes back to the idea of fruit. And so the idea, they would see these tassels and they would say, I'm called to bear fruit for God. All right, so this was something that, you know, kind of distinguished them, set them apart as Jews. And then we have this parenthetical statement that Lazarus is explaining to his readers who were, you know, these readers, he's writing years later, and maybe they're unfamiliar with the Palestinian prejudice with the Jews and and the Samaritans. So he adds this, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, think about this for a minute. We saw in verse 8, the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. For his disciples had gone away they go into Samaritan village to buy food. So it's obvious that they did have dealings with Samaritans. So why does Lazarus say they had no dealings with Samaritans? 
Is Lazarus making a mistake here or what? Here's the problem. The translations are a mistake. And I don't know any translation that translates this correctly. But the Greek word used here for uh, dealings is sung kreomai. And it means to use the same objects or utensils. Literally, the verb is this. They do not use the same utensils. Or they do not use anything together with Samaritans. Or they don't use the same things. In other words, they don't drink out of the same cup. It's very specific. He didn't say they don't have any dealings. They don't use the same utensils, is what it's saying. They don't use that. Well, you got a problem because he's at a well. He's got no utensils. You know? So guess, how's he going to get a drink? The woman is saying to him, I know your culture. I know what you people think about us. And Yeshua literally shattered that because it was a non-biblical tradition. So can you imagine this woman? First of all, she's shocked, and then he's not taken back at all by this. He wants a drink from her, and so she's realizing, this guy's a little different than most Jews I've had to deal with. He doesn't view me. He's not looking down on me. He's not thinking I'm contaminated. He's not treating me like that. He is softening her to be able to talk to her. The kind of hatred that the Jews had towards the Samaritans was illegitimate. It wasn't biblical. They were, they were always to take the gospel to other people, and they just failed to do it. Because they hated people. Well, Yeshua was putting it how it should be. Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would ask Him, and He would give you living water. Now, just like his conversation with Nicodemus, Yeshua uses words of the other person as a catalyst to deliberately turn the conversation to a spiritual conversation and challenge them and confront them with their spiritual need. Both Nicodemus and the woman initially understood Yeshua's words in a straight, literal, physical sense. Nicodemus thinks he's talking about physical birth. How do I be born again? How do I crawl back into my mother's womb? This woman thinks he's talking about physical water. Both see the impossibility of the physical action that they think Yeshua is asking them to do. She goes, you can't get water. For me, you got nothing to get it with. All right? Nicodemus knows it's impossible for a man to enter his mother's womb and be reborn. The woman knows this stranger can't provide water. He didn't bring a bucket. He doesn't have a cup. He can't get down this deep well. And Yeshua points both of them to the unseen spiritual realm of which he is really speaking. He's trying to tell Nicodemus there's the birth which is spiritual. It's not physical. And he's telling her there's water that eternally sustains and satisfies the spiritual life. It's not physical. Yeshua answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God. Now, first of all, the if here is a second class condition. It's called contrary to fact. It's a statement that's made that is false to highlight a conclusion that is also false. So you could say, if a second class condition, if means if and it's not so. So if you knew the gift of God, well, you don't know the gift of God. Because you don't know the gift of God, you're not going to understand this. And Yeshua implied here that uh, he had a greater gift for her, and he, he implied that he had the authority to give it to her. The word that Yeshua uses for gift here is doria. It's a word that Paul uses, but it only occurs here in the Gospels. Now, Judaism argues about this phrase a lot. A lot of people argue about this phrase. What does he mean by gift of God? Well, Judaism says it's the Torah. He's referring to the Torah. However, on some occasions, Jews referred to Messiah also as the gift of God. 
But I think more likely in this text, the gift of God is the Holy Spirit, is eternal life, because they're kind of connected there, right? The Holy Spirit brings eternal life. And most interpreters see it that way. They see gift of God as a reference to the Holy Spirit or to eternal life. He says, He would have given you living water. Now, the word living here is the Greek word zoe. Zoe means life. It means living. But living water here that Yeshua promised has two meanings. Literally, it means flowing water. That's why it's called living. The water is moving in contrast to stagnant water. But metaphorically, it refers to the cleansing and refreshing grace that the Holy Spirit brings. And just as in his encounter with Nicodemus, Yeshua uses common words and expressions to express a deeper teaching. Now, the Tanakh used water often to symbolize teaching or doctrine. There's cleansing in this, the teaching and the doctrine. But it uses living water as a metaphor for Yahweh. Look at Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've rejected the running, living water of God and His goodness and trying to prepare things on their own. They're just going to dig their own cisterns. Jeremiah 17.13 Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yahweh. So we see in these verses that Yahweh is the living water. Well, Zechariah 14.8 speaks of living waters flowing out of Jerusalem in the day of Messiah. And I think you're all familiar with Ezekiel 47. You know what happens in Ezekiel 47? He sees the temple and he sees a little trickle of water coming out from the temple. And, and he measures it and he goes a thousand yards and then it's deeper and it's up to his waist and all of a sudden this water is just this huge river coming out of the temple. Look at Ezekiel 47.9. Speaking of that water, he says, it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. This water is bringing life. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. It's living water. It's the water of life that's coming forth out of this temple. So this phrase, living water, might be translated water of living or water of life. Yeshua is speaking of the living water which spiritually comes from the Holy Spirit. This is a Johannian figure for the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wonder about that because we see it in John 7. He says, He who believes in me as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, but this he spake of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So living water is the Spirit who gives life. And in verse 11, she says to him, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? See, she's confused. She's thinking on a physical level. Well, it's interesting that she calls him Sir. This is Kurios, which means Sir and Lord. And I think she's starting to gain a little respect for him because he's treating her with respect. You know, he's not looking down on her. He's not preaching down to her. He's treating her with respect. And therefore, she's like, okay, what do you have to say? Let's, let's talk about this. Where are you going to get this water? 
I mean, you don't have a bucket, you don't have a rope, you got nothing. So where do you get this stuff from? Unlike Nicodemus, you know, his conversation with Nicodemus, Nick, he seemed to get more skeptical each time they had an exchange. Where then, she says, do you get this living water? You know, just as Nicodemus did earlier, the woman takes Yeshua literally. He's talking about literal water. She thinks Yeshua is telling her he can give her better water than that which comes out of this well. And by living water, she understands flowing water. She doesn't understand it in a metaphorical sense of the Spirit. She clearly understands it as just regular flowing water. And considering they're at a well, it's not too hard for her to think in that manner. You know, she's thinking on a, a materialistic level. And she thinks, well, he's got some flowing, living water that's a better source than this water, so where's he going to get this from? He didn't have anything to draw with, so she's just kind of curious, how are you going to do that? And then she'll, so she asks him in verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now, to obtain water on this spot, even the patriarch Jacob, he had to dig a well, and he had to have a means for getting it out of the hole. If Yeshua was offering fresh water without having to dig, without having any means to raise it up, she goes, well, are you saying you're greater than Jacob? I mean, he had to work to get this water out of you. You're just saying you're going to bring it? And I think this is an example of how Lazarus uses irony here. The woman is using Jacob as her authority. And since the five different colonies imported into the region intermarried with those that were left. Remember we talked about that last week when Syria attacked Israel. They took many of the Israelites out, spread them all around the country, and they took five different countries and brought them in, and they all intermingled. So guess what? There's just a big interracial mess there. There's no one that really can claim Jacob as being their father, but they did in a spiritual sense. But she's, I think maybe unconsciously and ironically stating a truth that Yeshua is greater than Jacob. But she doesn't get that yet. She goes, are you greater than Jacob? And her reference to our father Jacob may also have been a barb uh, designed to remind this Jew that Jacob was the Samaritan's ancestor as well as the Jews. In other words, I know you people hate us, but guess what? We come from the same people. All right, We come from the same stock, she's saying. Now the contrast between Yeshua and Judaism is again obvious in this text. Jacob, a Jewish patriarch, gave the well that fails to satisfy thirst. Yeshua provides the water that forever satisfies the spiritual thirst. And there's also a contrast between container and contents. Jacob's provided the well, but the water was God's gift. And Yeshua doesn't come offering a well, a container. Rather, He offers the water, the content of the well. So Yeshua is offering what only God could provide to Judaism. And I think this is a key point for Lazarus. The implication is that Yeshua provided better things. Now, as we saw earlier, the Tanakh uses the expression fountain of living waters for Yahweh. So Yeshua is reminding this woman of the fact that not only is he greater than Jacob, he's Jacob's God. He's the one whom Jacob wrestled with at Peniel. He's the one who stood by Jacob at Bethel and gave him those great promises. He's the one who was there who said the elder shall serve the younger. He's standing here in front of this woman who's citing Jacob. And she goes, are you greater than Jacob? Absolutely. Way greater. I'm Jacob's God. I'm the creator of Jacob. She doesn't get any of this yet. 
Verse 13, he says, Yeshua answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Physical level, you get that, right? You're going to be thirsty once you get a drink. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. Well, that's not physical water. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, to be able to provide such water, Yeshua would indeed have to be greater than Jacob. He describes the water as welling or springing up within the individual. Clearly, he's referring to the Holy Spirit who provided eternal life. And the Greek verb here for springing up referred to the quick movements that living beings, both animals and people, make when they jump or dart or run. And the Greek translation of the Tanakh, the Septuagint, uses the same verb to denote God's Spirit coming upon Samson, Saul, and David. So it's clearly referring to the liver of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. This springing up is the water that the Spirit is going to provide. That's who he's talking about, the Holy Spirit bringing eternal life. Now the verb drink here in verse 14, this is in the aorist tense. This means that the author has in mind the single act or event of taking a drink. You just take one drink of this water that I give and you're done. You don't need to keep drinking it. You don't need to fall in love with him over and over. You don't need to get saved every other week, okay? When you take the drink, it's provided. That's it. Single act of taking a drink. He's not referring to frequent, repeated drinking, which would be the case in literal, ordinary water. It's the event of receiving the Holy Spirit that is there forever. Now, in the encounter with Nicodemus, the teaching is that through water and the Spirit, the new birth was promised. In the encounter with the Samaritan woman, the symbolism is different. Not a birth through water, but the drinking of living water. Nevertheless, in both cases, the water is a symbol of the Spirit. Both times. And the woman said to him, Sir, well, give me this water, so I'll not be thirsty, or come all the way here to draw. <laughs> good, you see what she's saying, right? She still doesn't get it. Oh, good, well, give me that water, because I'm sick of coming all the way to this well and Letting this bucket down and having to pull my bucket up. I want water that I don't have to, you know, come here all the way to do it. She didn't realize he was referring, when he says living water, he's not talking about flowing water. He's talking about the water of the Spirit. She's still thinking on a literal plane. She wanted the water so she wouldn't have to keep coming week after week, day after day. She doesn't get it. But she will next week. <laughs> okay? Next week she'll get it. Because he's going to go on and continue to confront her and he's going to make some statements that make her eyes open and she say, oh, I see that you are more than just a man. She got it. But as we close this morning and looking on this text and what we've seen so far, and I hate to break this into two parts, but I don't want to keep you for a couple hours either. So you'll have to you know, wait till part two will come next week. Then you can listen to them both together. When Yeshua met with this woman, all right, he goes through Samaria, which most Jews would not do, all right? He goes through Samaria purposely to meet with this woman. This is very prophetic. A Samaritan woman at a well. Here's the bridegroom meeting with her, beginning to call Israel back as he's promised. There's just so much in this text. It just gets you excited, okay? I mean, there's a lot in here, all right? But when, when he talked to her, he broke a lot of cultural taboos by getting in a conversation. But that didn't seem to bother him at all. He doesn't, he, in other words, he wasn't worried what these other people are going to think of him if they see him talking to this woman. And he didn't look at her like, lady, you, you're a mess spiritually, you know, immorally. You're just a mess. I need to find somebody who's more on the righteous plane. 
All right, so I can share the gospel with, right? So let me ask us, what cultural taboos do we face that keep us from talking to sinners about Christ? Because I think we have some block there. You know, it's almost like if I'm going to share the gospel, I'm looking for somebody who's a good candidate. Like they're righteous, they're nice, they're moral. They've got all the wonderful... So all they have to do is say, yeah, I believe and nothing will have to change, right? You know, do we understand the power of God? I don't think we do. I think we've come to a point in our lives where we limit the power of God. Oh, the gospel, I don't know that they'll accept the gospel. It doesn't matter. You know, you pick the worst of sinner. I don't care how bad a sinner that you think they are. You take the gospel to them. And let the Lord, don't be afraid, you know, some Christian sees you talk. Well, my Christian buddies see me talking to them. That's who you're supposed to be talking to. I got a friend that goes to the bar and witnesses, and I'll tell you what, he has such results in that. He's taken a lot of people out of the bar and baptized them. Those guys would never set foot in the church, but here they are sitting talking about the Lord Yeshua the Christ and trusting Him. I, I think one of the most powerful testimonies I've heard recently is the testimony of David Wood. And you know who David Wood is? He's got a ministry to, uh, uh, teaching the truth of Islam, basically. He's, he knows the Quran really well, and he teaches the truth of Islam. This guy, when he was younger, was just a sick person, okay? He took a hammer. His dad was sitting in the living room. He took a hammer to his dad. He wanted to kill his dad. And he came up behind his dad, and he hit his dad in the head with the hammer nine times. He thought his dad was dead, so he left. And he went out and went about his business. You know, well, his mother called him, and he just figured, oh, dad's dead. Well, his dad didn't die. His dad lived. Well, they took him, and they put him in prison, and in prison, he, he ran into a Christian. And the Christian shared his testimony with David Wood. And now this man is serving God. He's out of prison. He's serving God. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He's got a family. When you hear him talk about the Bible, you get excited. But when you know his testimony, you would never approach him with the God. This guy's too sick. Let me tell you what. The gospel changes lives. Because it's the power of God. Let's not ever diminish that. Let's realize the power. He can confront a woman of Samaria who is a sinner and not even be the least bit concerned because he knows what the power of the gospel will do. Oh, that we'd have the boldness to take it to people who we think wouldn't receive it. They're the ones who need it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Father, I thank you for the power of the gospel. Lord, if we would just be bold. As Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God. Lord, help us to realize that. That you have the power to change lives totally, to make a psychopathic killer into a saint. (laughs) Lord, it's incredible. Thank you for your grace to us. We love you, Lord. Amen.